You are listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, we're featuring Philip Wingard and the second part of a podcast in regards to stoneware in America. Welcome again, Philip. Thanks for having me. All right, so we, we, stopped, uh, we stopped our last podcast on Mr. Chandler. Uh, Thomas Chandler from Baltimore, and uh, love for you to continue with the story. Okay, sure. Um, well, Thomas Chandler was a, um, he, he appears to have been a very intelligent young man. He was trained and educated in Baltimore, primarily Baltimore. Um, he was um, he was interested in uh, pottery, stoneware making. His father was a, a Windsor chair maker, but I don't think he had any interest in making chairs. He found himself, uh, I kind of look at him like he was sort of like a street urchin, you know. He roamed the streets of Baltimore, and he got to see so much going on. Um, Baltimore was, at the time, really the design center in America. Uh, a, there was a movement called American Fancy that occurred in the early 1800s. It would have been in full bloom when Chandler was there, and he would have seen the decorative uh, elements of that movement, both in the furniture and the architecture, uh, in the wallpaper and the furnishings and in the accessories. He would have seen all of that, and it would have influenced him to a great deal in how he saw how stoneware should be made. So when you look at the, uh, the path he chose, uh, in 18, by 1829, he is a master potter, but he did not go through the apprenticeship process. Uh, because most apprenticeships, he would have been about 18 years, 17 years old at the time, most apprenticeships actually happen, begin happening when you turn 17 and last to 21. He was already a master potter, as so evidenced by a pot that he made as a presentation piece that was given, that he gave to his aunt on the Eastern Shore that showed his decorative uh, skill, his turning skill, and it's, it's signed and dated by him. And this pot's at the... At the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts in Winston-Salem. So you're welcome to go see it anytime you want. I see. You can see what I'm talking about. So he is really, um, we're talking about a couple of generations removed from the Revolutionary War, right? His, his dad, I think, was born in 1780. Uh, and then, then he was obviously the son of his, his father. But, uh, right. So he's, only, he's, he's a couple generations his removed. His grandfather, I think, was involved. And his, he had uncles that, were, that fought in the War of 1812. And uh, the, the Chandlers were very patriotic folks. And they, they served their country in, in every war that they could. I mean, there's evidence of that. And they were, uh, the Eastern Shore is mainly a uh, agrar- agrarian, or agrarian uh, economy. Uh, and so when his father learned to make chairs, it was kind of an unusual thing for him to come back to the Eastern Shore but he was there for about 10 years before he realized that if he was going to make chairs, make it for a living, he needed to be in an urban environment, so he went back to Baltimore. I see. And the, um, at this point, uh, when Chandler gets old enough to leave home, he heads off and he's in search of a job to make stoneware, but he's just not successful. Without a piece of paper stating that you're a, an accomplished potter or trained potter, it'd be hard to really give a, 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 if you went into a pottery shop, say in Albany, it'd be hard for anybody to hire you off the street. They'd want you to go through all the steps that he had already been through, which was mm-hmm. digging the clay and all that sort of thing before he could get to the wheel. 
and and that plus the economic the economics of the 1930s and 40s there was always some the 1830s and excuse 40s. me yeah 1830s and 40s there are always some sort of economic upturns and downturns they were just recessions and depressions just happened all the time and that was one of the reasons that you know um, president jackson wanted to federalize all the banks he wanted basically to stop banks from failing these individual banks that could create these small areas of depression and recession so chandler goes obviously to albany uh, probably to turn to, to, to be a potter and that through frustration or whatever he eventually just decides to join the army a steady job, steady pay, and he joins in December of 32, and in January of 33, he is shipped out with his unit to go to Augusta, Georgia, to the arsenal of Augusta, Georgia. A couple of interesting things about his his signing up, he signed up under a Captain Dade, D-A-D-E, Dade, and that would have been his superior officer even when they went to Augusta. And so the reason this army was there, or this, this regiment was there, or they were building up forces there, was that President Jackson fully expected to have to invade South Carolina and force them to obey the tariff laws that he had passed through Congress. Well, apparently this created uh, enough of a imminent possibility to South Carolina that, that they were willing to do a little bit of... Uh, negotiating and compromising. And so the uh, compromise, I think, was passed in early March of 1833, and all of a sudden there is no threat. And so the Army then decides to, they needed to send, or Jackson decided we need to send these troops into, into Alabama to quell the uh, Indian uprisings that were happening there because of the acquisition of Florida and the fact that the the Native Americans there did not want uh, their lands to be taken over by the government. So five days into the march to go to Alabama, Thomas Chandler deserts. And there is um, a pottery site very close to where he would have deserted. And uh, it was the Cogburn Pottery. And the Cogburn had come from Pottersville. We talked about Pottersville earlier. Cogburn was a potter at Pottersville. And then by 18... I think by 1818, he's in Georgia. So he's already moved on and established a pottery there in Washington County. And this is where Chandler's deserts. And Chandler's deserts, he's gone for about six months. But then after six months, he rejoins the Army. So by rejoining, it gave him, it gave him the opportunity to uh, clean, his, clean his slate, so to speak, or to start, start over. And... Uh, he had to go to prison. He was he had he had to go to prison for a year, and while he was in prison, he was he went through a court martial proceeding, but he was acquitted. Now, that would say to me that he did something when he left. Maybe he had an officer or something along those lines. He did something when he left, but he was acquitted, and he was then once he was acquitted, he was allowed to transfer in his own request into the artillery. His thinking was, of course, is the artillery doesn't move as fast as troops. They, you know, they're a little harder to get them to go from one place to another, and they usually are only used when you have a war, really a real battle. Right. So he joins the artillery and ends up back in Augusta. So now he's back in Augusta, and he's close to Pottersville. He's close to, he's within 20, 25 miles of Pottersville. And so it's at this point that we begin to see Thomas Chandler 
making his way to Pottersville, even though he's still in the army, perhaps on furlough from time to time. And the first evidence of, of him in Pottersville is about 1836, where we see handwriting on some pots that is in his handwriting. These were pots that he basically, we call them presentation pots or um, self-advertising pots, where the company that made the pot would write their name on it so that whoever bought the pot and whoever saw the pot would know that's where these pots were made. This was something new for Pottersville. Prior to these several pots that he did this on, this had never been seen in Pottersville, never been seen for for 20 years. The pots had been, potteries had been in business. Certainly so, went counter to what Landrum and his simplicity right. uh, in, in, in design. And this is also, uh, because Abner's gone to Columbia now, and this is in 1836, he's working with the Drakes, who were the nephews, and they were probably a little more open-minded. And as well, he was working with a man by the name of Robert Mathis there at Pottersville, and Colin Rhodes was also at Pottersville as an overseer. Well, but still, he's in the Army. He has to basically, he has to finish out his tour. He's not going not gonna to desert. So, um, but something else happens in 1836. The artillery is actually called to go into central Florida to a fort called Fort Defiance to shore up uh, the infantry there because there have been a number of attacks by Osceola and other uh, Seminole Indian chiefs. And one particular attack, the Seminoles, uh, led by Osceola, attacked Major Dade's uh, unit and, and wiped them out. So Major Dade was killed in an engagement in Florida, and he was the man who had actually signed Thomas Chandler up. And so now, um, suddenly, maybe the war is a little more real to Thomas Chandler when he knows this. And so he, he and the artillery, they go to Fort Defiance, and this is a, a place, a little town called Micanopy. And here, Osceola attacks the fort and is really starting to... Uh, look like he may actually take over the fort and they open up the doors to the fort and the artillery starts to blast away and it broke up the, the charge and after that it became a big victory for uh, the American troops and this was really one of the first victories they'd had in Florida. They were really being soundly beaten because Florida was such a horrible, horribly tough place to to fight, it was it was uh, swamps, it was mosquitoes, it was malaria, and, and we lost many men during this campaign to disease, many more than, than were killed by uh, in battle. So, but this was a big win. But Chandler was apparently wounded during this during this particular battle, and so for the rest of his time in the service, he's recuperating from a wound, and eventually he's discharged in 1837 and the discharge stated that you know he was a stoneware potter so he was actually now using this as his profession and he ends up back in Edgefield um, and shortly after his discharge he marries Margaret Durham who was a daughter of an established pottery in the south in particular in the south if you wanted to go into business with somebody, the best way to do it in the South was to marry into the family. If you wanted to have a, you know, a quick leg up on, on what you're going to be able to do in, in business. And so by marrying into the Durham family, Chandler for the first time was going to be a potter in Edgefield. He was going to be 
someone who would be production potter, would be paid for making stoneware, and he would be given a little bit of latitude into how he wanted to make his pots. He still worked for somebody. He didn't own his own shop, but he was able for the first time to demonstrate how he, what he could do and how he could, how he could turn pots and how, how great and productive he was as a potter. He was also now really getting his elbows and elbow deep into the alkaline glaze. And we talked a little bit about the alkaline glaze and, and the reason that it's significant or, or the reason that it's significant and the reason that it was so useful and so beneficial. But the other thing about the alkaline glaze that's really fascinating is that you can make it in your backyard. You didn't have to order anything from anybody else. You can you can make get all the ingredients in your own backyard or in, at the pottery shop. You had maybe do a little foraging around for a feldspar or or some minerals like that. But in South Carolina, those things are pretty much readily available. So Chandler, he learned the alkaline glaze and he learned it the way that it had been done uh, by his uh, people he was working with, like the Durham's and Robert Mathis, and even uh, the, the the Landrum nephews, uh, the Drakes, but he eventually he put his own signature on uh, in, in how he made the, the alkaline glaze. He made it much more like the way the Chinese made it with more feldspar. And so his pots are distinctive because of that. They tend to have um, almost bluish hues or in some cases um, gray, uh, very, very drippy and in some places, in other places not, but you can almost see his pots from a distance and recognize them because he had a signature glaze that was different and it was because he used a high, higher amount of feldspar. There are feldspar out uh, crops. There, there are places to find it above the fall line, not below the fall line. Below the fall line, it's a different type of feldspar. Above the fall line, this, um, Feldspar is more granite-like. And you know, everyone kind of knows what granite is, but when you say Feldspar, they're like, what is Feldspar? I mean, that's a hard one to visualize. But just think of Feldspar as being like granite, but softer, not as hard on the hardness scale. So Chandler would mine Feldspar near these pottery sites. Then you would, uh, you would cook it in the kiln at about 500 degrees for eight or 10 hours. And then when you took it out, you would crush it into a powder. It would crush then into a powder. That powder then, need, you needed to only add water to the powder and, and maybe a few other minor ingredients, but you had your powdered glaze right there. You just add water to it, dip the pots into this liquid, and then they were ready to fire after, this, after they dried. So um, this particular type of, um, of glaze was Chandler's and um, other potters, used some feldspar down in the lower part, but it had more iron in it. And those, those feldspars uh, became sort of chocolate-looking pots with the darker glazes. And that's from a darker feldspar that was even more, even softer than uh, the feldspars up in the, above the fall line. The region that we're talking about here, the Northern Edgefield District region, is a region that had volcanic activity 200 million years ago. And so what we're looking at, these minerals here are left over from 200 million years ago. And so that is another reason this was particularly an interesting place to make pots. So Chandler came into the area. Uh, he, had a, he had a vast knowledge of different types of forms. 
he immediately started making water coolers. He started making uh, saddle jugs. He started making flasks. He started making bowls and pans for the kitchen, for kitchen use. These are things that, that no one else had been making. And he comes in and says, if you want to sell more pots, look to the women. The women will buy these. And sure enough, they bought these bowls by the thousands that he made, beautiful bowls. And I've actually found and have had the opportunity to see these bowls that Chandler made in 1849 that are still today perfect and beautiful like the day they were made. Wow. He fired his pot so hot and, and so and the vitrification was so well done. And the vitri vitrification of the pot, the clay body, and the glaze matched. And that's the key to being a great potter. You know, you want to, you want your pots to vitrify at a certain temperature, but you want the glaze to to match that temperature. If you don't, the glaze is going to be bubbly and flaky, or it's going to be dry or whatever. It's just not going to match the pot. He matched his glazes to his pots perfectly when when he did it right. And this was a, this is wood fired technology, so we're not talking about having uh, electric kilns where you can control the temperature to a tenth of a degree. He was doing this all with wood. So he he had this uh, kind of effect on the local potters. And then in addition to that, another major influence that Thomas Chandler brought to the area was how to slip trail on pots. No one had done any slip trailing. And the slip trailing tradition that you see on uh, particularly earthenware pots had never been done on stoneware to any extent. And William Morgan, a man he trained under, under in Baltimore, Morgan did a little slip trailing with cobalt, but it was hard to do and not particularly effective. What is slip trailing? Slip trailing is um, the, the craft of being able to take, uh, first of all, create a slip, which is a liquid clay that's, that's liquid enough that you can then put it in a apparatus that's like if you're thinking about decorating a cake, right? And that, those cake decorators had plungers on them and they pushed the plunger and then they can write with that right. icing. Well, what Chandler had to use was a cup that had a hole with a little little uh, spigot coming out of it and then the back end was an open, uh, open end. He would fill it with slip and when he took his thumb off the hole at the top, the slip would start coming out the bottom, and then he would decorate with that. I see. Now, and that was before he fired it? This is before it was fired, but this was after it was glazed. I gotcha. gotcha. Now, I've seen both. I've seen sometimes where it's, it's, it's decorated and then glazed, but primarily after, after these pots were glazed. This slip trailing, um, he could even write out names. He could write out business names, and so he did a lot of that where he would, he would write out uh, presentation uh, pots to advertising certain businesses. You know, businesses in Lexington, Orangeburg, Hamburg, Columbia, Charleston, all these cities. If, if, if a store man, if a store, if store owner wanted his pot to have his business name on it, Thomas Chandler could accommodate. It might cost 10 cents extra, but he could do it. And so it was a marvelous uh, thing to have happen this man who was trained in an urban environment to come into the backcountry with this skill and eventually he was accepted. Eventually it was of 
he was you know he, he accomplished great things and he was notable for what he was able to do and he made a he made a, a, a good enough living at it so that by 1850 he was able to open up his own shop and be his own shop owner and I think in 1850 he was actually managing probably three potteries at one time that was again the same way that it would have been done in the urban areas in the north is the potters would oftentimes have their own shop and they would work at two or three other shops as well because if you were accomplished and you were productive as Chandler was you could you made money every time you turned a pot and he was able to make pots at will very quickly so Chandler goes into this uh, this peak or zenith of his career now um, out producing everybody uh, just to give you a kind of a rough estimate Thomas Chandler potted in Edgefield from about 1838 to 1854. Um, it's about 16 years. And some of those years he may not have potted, but let's just say that's a range of years that he potted. His output in those 16 years probably exceeds the output of known pots made by David Drake, who was a slave and potted from about 1820 to 1870. And Dave made a tremendous amount of pots, and they're known. But Chandler, during his time period, probably produced as much or more than Dave. Now, here again, we talked about Dave working at the John Landrum site. Well, that was not a full-time pottery. And so he wasn't making pots year-round. So Dave, Dave working there or Chandler working there? Well, Dave worked at John Landrum. Okay. Dave was at John Landrum. He also worked at Stony Bluff. Here again, Stony Bluff was not a full-time operation. It was, it was probably more productive than John Landrum, but... Here again, this was a plantation economy, so it, when the fields had to be harvested, everybody had to pitch in. Everybody had to be involved because it was, you know, cotton had to be picked before it was rained. Weed had to be cut before it rained. All these things were time sensitive, and so on, a, on the plantation, everybody had to pitch in to make it happen. In the stoneware business, um, you know, you plot along and you, you have to go through the processing of the clay, getting the clay ready to turn. Then you have to go through making your glaze, and then you have to turn the pots, then you glaze the pots, and then you fire the pots. I think Chandler was able to make probably fire at least once a week, if not once every two weeks. But he was able to crank out pots. He used a smaller kiln. His kiln was about uh, 40 feet long. Whereas the John Landrum and the Stony Bluff kilns and the Pottersville kilns were over 100 feet long. So it was a, a little bit of a different technology as far as how to fire his. But he came from that type of, of, of environment where they fired in smaller spaces because of the urban element living in a city. Uh, and they probably fired in updraft kilns, which was also a little different. But he understood that process, and so he was able to fire every week or two in a smaller kiln and that way he kept his cash flow coming you know if, you, if you're if you're making pots for an, a hundred foot long kiln you may not fire but once a month or every two months but you're not getting paid until those pots are fired and finished and sold Chandler was getting paid every week or two he understood how important cash flow was so Philip this is the second of a three-part series tell us how people can reach you well, the best way to reach me probably would be through email. Um, my email address would be philip one lwingard 
W-I-N-G-A-R-D, at yahoo.com. I also do antique shows throughout the year. I'm at the Madison Antique Show in late February. I'm at the Columbia Bottle Show in mid-February. I oftentimes do the Catawba Valley Pottery Show in Hickory, North Carolina in late March. I also do a show in Camden, South Carolina in May, and I do a show in Cashiers, North Carolina in late July. And in the fall, I'll do the um, antique show at Liberty, North Carolina, the last weekend in September. So I hope to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you.